Uh, This is Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up uh, his eyes and saw the, uh, the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray together. Our Lord, here we have a deep, mysterious, strange, haunting passage. And yet, as we read it, whether we're reading it for the hundredth time or for the first time, we just know that there is a deep meaning, a deep revelation of who you are in it. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher now. And I pray that um, you would forgive the sins of the one who teaches, for you know that my sins are many. And you would take your perfect and holy word to challenge us and uh, to give us hope, to point us to you 
and, uh, and to preach the gospel to us. So we invite you into this time, uh, and we ask that you would open our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we are looking at today at one of the most probably famous stories from ancient literature, uh, from the ancient world. This is, uh, commentators say that um, in terms of uh, ancient literature, this is a masterpiece. Um, The way this is written, Moses wrote this, the account of this story, uh, how haunting it is, how gripping it is. And, um, but probably more importantly for us, this is, uh, this story marks the climax of Abraham's life. We've been looking this fall at the life of Abraham. We've seen lots of ups and downs, God's uh, faithfulness to him. And uh, actually, interestingly, a lot of that story is about uh, this promised son, Isaac. You know, there's this continual promise. There's this anticipation that Isaac's going to be born. And last week, we read the account of Isaac being born, and it was just seven little verses. It was (laughs) quite small, you know, for uh, so much buildup. And it turns out that this, this is actually the climactic moment, where not once Isaac's born... But now when God says, hear this son that you love, I want you to offer him up, to slaughter him. To offer him as a burnt offering. And um, the complexity of this story has um, made it one that has caused, uh, in Judaism and in Christianity for centuries, a great amount of reflection. People have reflected on what is going on here? What is God saying? Uh, What is the meaning of this? And, um, you know, and I think that part of the reason is because it raises for us a deep problem that, um, that many of us wonder at very deeply. Because here in Genesis 22, uh, we see that Abraham, he's waited his whole life for this son. God's been promising his son. He's been waiting decades for Isaac to be born. Uh, it's, it's been a big trial of, of, of his heart, and all of his aspirations of his life are wrapped up in this child. All the promises of God, all that God has said that he will do is wrapped up in this child. And now God says to him, I want you to kill him. I want you to give him up. I want you to lose him. And the question that raises for us is, how can I trust a God like that? How can I trust a God that would, would build up all this anticipation in someone and say to him, I want, you to, I, I want you to let him go, right? And actually, for a lot of people, that's part of the reason they don't want to become Christians. They're suspicious that this is what God wants to do. You know, God wants to get a hold of my life, and then there are all these things that my heart is wrapped up in that I love, that I love dearly, and he wants to rip those out of my life. You know, he's this jealous God who uh, doesn't want my heart towards anything. He doesn't want me to love anything else. And uh, he's going to put me in a cage. He's not going to let me do these things. Uh, That God is kind of a killjoy. He's not good. Right? He doesn't want good things for me. And uh, and yet, um, here we find that God tells Abraham to offer up his son. And God stopped him. God doesn't have, he doesn't want him to offer up Isaac. It turns out he doesn't want him to. It turns out he's very different. He doesn't believe in child sacrifice. He takes him through this whole ordeal. God is very confusing in this. And actually, you know, one of the things you find is in, in the book of Genesis is that uh, Moses uses two different names to refer to God. One is Elohim. That's the, whenever you see the word God in, uh, in uh, Genesis, it's the word Elohim. It's, uh, Elohim is the God of Genesis 1, the mysterious maker who's behind everything, who created everything, who, who's invisible, who's outside of the universe, that we don't, uh, 
you know, we can't see. And uh, he's distant and strange and mysterious to us. And then there's the other name, Yahweh, who's the God of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Yahweh's the one who, who forms Adam and Eve, and he says it's not good for man to be alone, and he gives... Uh, gives Adam a, a bride, and he's the one who's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, and who's close to them, and he gives them all the plants of the field. He says, take and eat everything. And, uh, and he's the intimate God. God is both distant and mysterious, and where is he? And at the same time, he's intimate and close. He's this intimate father. He's very confusing. And for many of us, that's our experience of God, right? Which is he? Is he the distant, demanding God? I mean, that's what we see first, is he's demanding Abraham. Uh, it's God who says to Abraham, go and offer your son. Mysterious, strange, what's God up to? And often we feel like that. God is distant. Where is he? And yet at other times, he's so intimate. He's so close. He's so tender. He knows us. Is Yahweh who's close to us, the covenant God. And which one is he? And uh, what this means is that walking with God in the world is a puzzle. It's a strange thing. It's, you know, or the, it's a problem. It's a, the problem of God. And, uh, and by the way, you know, if for some of you, if that frustrates you, that God is kind of unpredictable and, you know, you can't put him together and you can't uh, make sense of how he's acting, what, we have to ask ourselves, what do we expect, Right? If you had a God who did everything that you expected him to do, and uh, he went according to your plan all the time, it's, you can almost guarantee that that's not the true God. <laughs> right? The, the, you can expect from the outset that the real God is inexplicable to you. Does things that you don't understand, is strange, is acting in strange ways like the way he's acting here. Because he wants to stretch you, he wants to reveal things to you that are beyond you. And um, how we see... Abraham uh, deals with this strange and mysterious God is that he has, in this story, three conversations. Uh, One with God, Elohim. One with Isaac, his son, his beloved son. And at the end, one with the angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh. It says the Lord. Whenever it says the Lord, that's the name Yahweh. And uh, and you can see it here. Look in verse 1. Look at there's, There's a pattern in each of these three conversations that Abraham has. In verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. Second conversation, down in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And and Abraham said to him, Here am I, my son. Here am I. And then again, in verse 11, the angel of the Lord comes and stops his hand when he's about to sacrifice his son. And what does it say? Uh, Abraham, Abraham. And it says, uh, Oops. I cut off there, and, and he said to him, uh, uh, here am I, again, right? Three times, here am I. And what Abraham shows us is that the life of faith is saying to God simply, here am I. I don't know if that hits you, that hits me, that that's a lot of what God expects of me. Here I am, God. You know, it's not, it's not heroic, strong uh, confidence that I know what's going to happen. I'm going forward. i got a plan. I'm going to do it. It's not that. It's simply, here am I. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand Elohim and Yahweh, how they fit together. But I'm here. I'm staying in it. I'm staying in the middle of it. And that's what you see Abraham doing. In the midst of horror and anguish and confusion, he's saying, here am I. And so what I uh, want to do is I want to look at each of these three conversations Abraham has and kind of look at them under three headings. The first is the problem of false gods. 
This is revealing the problem um, that we, in, in life and with God, is the problem of false gods. And it turns out that the answer to that problem is obedience. I'm gonna, I'll explain that. The second problem is the problem of the real God. This is an even deeper problem. Not just false gods, but the problem of the real God. And it turns out the, the answer to that is logic. Okay, I'm a, I'm a mathematician. I solve problems by logic. Okay, so that, that comes in here. Um, and, but lastly... As God faces, it brings all this problem of who God is in Abraham's life, it turns out that the third heading is the lamb who's the only answer. So God is a problem for us, but it turns out that there's a lamb there is a, uh, that God provides who is the answer to the problem. And so this is what we're going to look at together. So first, the problem of false gods. Now, the passage begins by saying that after these things... God tested Abraham. Now, this is a little something that, the, that Moses does to us to prepare us. That when uh, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, he's giving a cushion to us as a reader because it's so horrifying to say, okay, God's doing something. This isn't the whole story. And he's anticipating us that there's going to be some resolution that God doesn't really want him to sacrifice Isaac. He, he's testing him. And what that word testing means in the Bible is, is that God is revealing uh, Abraham's character. What's he really made of? What's really in his heart? That's what testing is. He wants to find out what's really in his heart. And, um, and it says at the, end of the pa- at the end of the passage, after the test, Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, and the angel, angel stops him and says, the angel says, now I know that you fear God. That's what it's been revealed, is that he um, fears God. Now, things that we fear are things that we, we believe to have power, right? Things that are, um, uh, are vivid, are real, are strong, and have a power. They can actually do things in our life. That's why we're afraid of them, is because they actually have a power in our life. And so to fear the Lord actually believe, means to believe that uh, God is active, um, God can do things. He's not, um, he's not, uh, he's not impotent, he's not uh, distant, um, he's not uninvolved. And, uh, but he's actually real. He's vivid. He's strong. Um, he's palpable. He's active. He's, he's present. That's what it means to fear the Lord. That's why we would fear him is because we, we believe he has some potency to him, some strength to him. And uh, it doesn't mean that we don't believe that God is loving. You know, Psalm, uh, Psalm 147 says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So to fear God actually means that you believe in his love. You believe that his love is powerful and it is strong. And um, the reason that uh, God is unveiling in Abraham that he has a fear of God is because there's a temptation in us to think that there are other things that are more potent in our life than God is. More active, more strong, have more power, right? And these are things that are false gods. Things that are, you know, that, that we can feel more. That, you know, that's kind of the big problem, right? It's like God's invisible, um, you know, we don't hear him, you know, audibly speaking to us. We don't see him. Uh, and so there's this sense of there all these other things in our life that give us comfort, that give us security. They seem to have more potency and power to us because they're real. We can feel them. We can taste them. We can, you know, they're right there. They're right in our face. And, um, and that, what we do is we have a tendency to make uh, false gods. And, um, you know, in, in Abraham's case... Here's this son that he's been waiting for his whole life. 
He's been waiting decades for a promised son who's going to be his heir. And the son finally comes. And all of a sudden, there's, there's a temptation to say that in the son is wrapped up all my hopes, all my, you know, the son is the object of God's blessing to me. And you can see that um, even in, uh, in, in verse 2, where uh, the Lord, God says to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. You see this threefold repetition? He has three different names for Isaac. He's trying to bring out, look at how dear Isaac is. Uh, look at how dear he is to you. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't want Abraham to love his son. Because he absolutely does. Actually, there's a little Hebrew particle in this phrase. That actually, God is saying, take please your son. And there's this gentleness where God is saying, I know that he's dear to you. It's not that I don't want you to be dear to him. But the question is, what do you really love? You know, when I give you these promises, is, um, is your love in what I can give you? Is it in my stuff? Or is it actually in me? You know, as you've been trusting me and getting things from me, I've said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give a son to you. Is it the stu- God is saying to Abraham, is it the stuff I can give you that you really love, or is it actually me? And so he's testing him. And um, I'll tell you that one of the... Um, uh, all the blessings that God gives us, all the good things that come into our life, are supposed to be tokens of things that tell us that we can trust God, that God is potent. Every paycheck we get, every meal we eat, every little kiss we get from one of our children, every time we have an answered prayer, all of those things should be saying to us, you can trust in God. God is providing for you. He wants good things for you. And yet our tendency is to say, no, I'm going to trust in the paycheck. No, I'm going to trust in, in that I have good children that are, are the way that I want them to be. No, I'm going to, um, I, I want control of my life. And so uh, what will often happen is that even though that God wants to give good things into our life, there will come a time where these good things that God gives to us will come into conflict with the calling that God has for us. And God is going to say, are you going to trust in, in these things that I've given to you, the stuff, or are you going to trust in me? That's what Abraham's saying is, is now God's giving him a command. Are you going to obey God or are you going to... Uh, is, is Isaac going to be all your hope? Which, which are you going to give yourself to? And I'll tell you that, um, you know, as Abraham's confronted, um, I, you know, honestly, the answer to this passage is what do you do when something that you love or, or your hopes, your security, your aspirations are in conflict with being obedient to God? And the simple answer for Abraham to say to God, here I am, it means to simply obey. God calls us to obey him, to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem with that. I, I think living in the Christian life, God calls us to obey. Jesus says, uh, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. But I'll tell you, for some of you, when I say that, the answer is to simply obey. You turn off. Something turns off in you. <laughs> and you say, isn't that typical? There's a typical, trite, religious answer that says, just obey God. It's as simple as this. You want to live through life? You want to to live a spiritual life? Just do what God says. And you say, if it's that easy, everyone knows that we should be a good people and we should obey God, but no one does it. (laughs) That's so trite to just say, why don't you just do good things? 
And, you know, that's what Christians are always saying. They don't understand the complexity of life. They don't understand the complexity of the mess that God's putting us into and the, and the complexity of, of the... Uh, and you just say, just do what God says. And by the way, <laughs> obey this God that we're talking about in this passage, right? <laughs> you want me to just obey him? That he, he gives Isaac or Abraham this son, and then he tells him to slaughter him? Do you have any idea, if you met someone in Bellingham who said to you, yeah, God told me to uh, offer up my son, slaughter him on an altar for, as a sin offering, and to burn him. Uh, what would you say if you met someone like that? You'd say, you're nuts. You should be locked up. You should not be anywhere near a child. And uh, we would say, you're crazy. And you'd say, that's the problem with religious people. Is they're so simplistic about you just trust God and you just obey him. And, you know, no matter what he says to do, you just do it, right? And that's what's dangerous about religious people. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you... Um, what that means, you know, what's wrapped up in a question like that is, how can I trust a God like this? And what that means is that even though our life, we are constantly faced with the problem of false gods, things that we can give our hearts to, there's actually a much deeper problem than that. Deeper than, deeper than the problem of false gods, deeper than the problem of obedience, is the problem of the real God. That's really what's underneath. Why are we giving our hearts to things and saying, you know, I'm going to devote myself to money or security or I, I want houses or, or uh, sexual pleasure or uh, whatever it is that we're, we, you know, shopping, whatever it is that we give our life to. Why are we giving our lives to things? It's because we actually don't really trust the real God. How do I know that I can give my heart to him? And so that leads to our second point. It's not just the problem of false gods, but we have a problem of the real God, the real God poses a problem for us. And what I want to say is that the answer to the problem of the real God is logic. <laughs> okay? Again, I'm a mathematician, so you'll hear what I mean. Um, now, these questions that we're asking, you know, is God good? Is God alive? Is he, can he be trusted? Will he care for me? Um, these are absolutely the same questions that Abraham is asking in this passage. He's asking, you know, actually... Um, in verse 3, it says this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place that God had told him. Now, what you have here is a uh, Hebrew grammatical construction. It's called a vav consecutive, which shows up in Hebrew narratives, where uh, there's a string of verbs that are put in order. And here we have he sat on his donkey, and then he uh, and then he took his servants and Isaac, and they load him up on the donkeys, and then he cut some wood, and then he arose and he went to the place that, that God was going to send him. Now, in Hebrew narratives, a vav consecutive always tells you things that are happening in order. And so, what commentators say is what Abraham's doing is he got the he got the donkey saddled up, he got uh, he got Isaac, he got the servants, you know, the minivans loaded, they're ready to go, they're ready to do the three day trip, and then he says he starts cutting wood. He says, I got to go cut some wood. <laughs> What's he, and to, for the burnt offering, it's a little, they say the ordering is strange. There's a hint here that Abraham is delaying. There's, he's working out, okay, God, here I am. Here's this strange request, but I'm, I got to work this out. And he's processing and he's delaying. And then actually, it, God, the place that God tells him to go is a three-day journey to the, uh, the land of, uh, of Moriah. It's a three-day journey. God is intentionally putting a cushion 
where he says, there is meaning in what I'm calling you to do. And you need to begin to work it out. You need to apply your logic. You need to ask these questions. How is God good in this? What is he doing? Where is it? You've got to process it. And you've got to take that time. And Abraham's doing that. He's cutting wood. You know, you ever do that? You're <laughs> stressed out? <laughs> I'm going to chop some wood. I'm going to think about it. Figure out what's going on here. I'm going to pray, chop some wood. That's what he's doing. And how does he work it out? Well, I see two things that he's doing. He's telling himself, there's, well, two things of how do we actually work out the problem of the real God. When God puts us in confusing things, is putting us through confusing things that we don't understand, how do we work it out? First, we look at God's record. And second, we look at God's character. Okay, so first we look at God's record. And, um, you know, one thing that's interesting about this passage is throughout there are a number of echoes of the rest of Abraham's life sprinkled throughout this passage. Um, so, you know, you have Isaac, and you have the angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord's shown up in other passages. And, uh, um, and the, uh, the, uh, the promises. But even this initial call that God has to Abraham where he says, Go and take your, your son, your, uh, your only son Isaac, whom you love, this kind of to a, to a, a, a mountain that I will show you. It's, almost, it's very similar to in Genesis 12 at the beginning of, of Abraham's journey where he says, go from your, your country and your father's house and your kindred to a land that I will show you. I'm not telling you where you're going. Again, he's saying, I'm not telling you where you're going. Leave three things. Leave this son that we give three names for. It's this echo of God's original call when he told him to go to the promised land and God provided for him. And it says, go to the place. And if you read through uh, Abraham's life, Abraham has been going throughout the land of Canaan and he's been setting up these places of worship, these places where God had provided for him. And there's this echo, this recording of how God had been faithful to him throughout his life. These are the things that God has done for you. Remember them. Work on those. This is why you can trust God. Let me just tell you, you know, this is something... As I do counseling in our church and with people, this is one of the best things I can do for people is they're saying, it's over. I, everything's a disaster. Uh, you know, I, where's God in this? How can I be faithful? Just go back and say, well, remember when God did this? Remember when God answered that prayer? Remember God was faithful, for you? faithful, faithful to you? You don't know what's happening here. You don't understand what God is putting you through, but he has a record And you depend on that. Work through those things. Process through those things and say, I can't trust in him. I can't depend on him. So the first thing is God's record. But the second thing, um, you know, and it's when you look at his record, that's how you can say to God, here am I. Here I am. I don't understand it, but here am I. Secondly, God's character. Now, you know, one of the things that that, uh, Abraham manages to do in this passage, which is amazing to me emotionally, is you imagine, you know, when God gives you good gifts and, and then you think, oh, God's just going to take away these good gifts he's given to me. We begin to detach ourselves from giving our heart to them. We say, you know, I don't want to pour my heart into this because God's just going to rip it away. So I'm, I'm going to just kind of stay emotionally distant from it. Abraham doesn't do that with Isaac, right? Um, I, I look at verse 6 and listen to the repetition of my father and my son. Uh, at the end of verse 6, it says this. So they went, both of them, together. This is at the end of their journey. They leave the servants behind, and just Abraham and Isaac, they're walking together to the mountain where God is going to, uh, sac- or where a- Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac. It says, so they went, both of them, together. His father and son, they love each other. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. 
I'm not detached from you. My heart still loves you. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a, uh, provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. They're going together. There's intimacy is still there. How is it that Abraham can do that? How can he keep his heart in the middle of this confusion, keep his heart connected to Abraham or Isaac and not, and, and not uh, detach himself? And, um, well, he, he, he points to Isaac the character of God. See that little line, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. God will provide for himself. Actually, you know, one of the things that's interesting, uh, Abraham's doing something, and we don't know what Abraham's thinking when God says to offer offer his, uh, you know, a child as an offering to God. You know, in Abraham's culture, all the local pagan deities, this would be something very common. You know, uh, the pagan deities are are making demands of large offerings. He said, you know, if you want to have a blessed crop, you know, then you've got to offer a firstborn son to God to appease him so that he'll give you blessings. And yet one of the things that throughout the Bible is different about the God of the Bible than the pagan gods is that the pagan gods are always greedy. They're always saying, I want more from you. I want to require more from you. I'm going to demand more from you. I want a bigger sacrifice. And what the Bible says over and over again is that the God of the Bible says, I will always provide the sacrifices for you. The sacrifices I demand, I will always give them to you. And actually, Jesus is the biggest picture of that. That the biggest sacrifice that, Jesus, that God required of us was he gave to us. It was his own son. And so um, what, uh, what Abraham is doing is he's reminding Isaac of God's character. God, he, he says, I, this is confusing. I don't know what God is doing, but I know this, that God is different than the pagan gods. He's doing something different than all the other pagan gods when they're asking people to give up their children. He's doing something different. And what's amazing to me is that as Abraham goes through this process, he's going through this process, he's using his logic, he's saying, what's God's record? What's God's character? I actually think he begins to get an answer. He begins to work it out. And that there is, what God is taking him through is loaded with meaning. And this leads, uh, as Abraham wrestles, this leads to our third point, that God does show him the lamb who is the only answer to the problem of God. The lamb who is the only answer to the problem of God. Now, um, I know I'm, uh, I'm showing you a lot of literary little things in this passage because it's, it's very beautiful, but... Um, uh, one of the things that's most remarkable of the kind of literary qualities of this passage is how frugal the writer is. You know, he's uh, just in a few verses, he's taking us through God's commands, uh, the preparations, the journey, this conversation with Isaac. And somehow, even though it's very, uh, you know, it's very short, it's loaded with emotion. It's very gripping. I mean, you get to the climax and your heart's like, what's going to happen? And, if, you know, if this is the first time you've heard it, you're like, what's God doing? I mean, you're wrapped into it. It's very short. It's only a half-page story. And so it's actually a literary masterpiece. But um, so far, the details are very sparse. But then you get to verse 9. And all of a sudden, the, the movement of the story changes, and it slows down, and all the details of what Abraham is doing are recorded. And you can hear this, um, where he says in verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, 
and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's very slowly moving. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And actually, it's very likely the Hebrew word there for knife is a cleaver. He took his cleaver to slaughter his son. And your heart is gripped at that point. Now the question is, what got Abraham to that point? What did Abraham work out in his logic to get to that point where he could actually raise that knife over his promised son that God had promised him? And um, I think that there's something uh, deep in the logic. And one of the things that the writer of Hebrew tells us is that uh, this is where Abraham's logic led him. It says this in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. As Abraham's spending three days, he's chopping wood, he's working through things, the conclusion he came to was resurrection. The answer is resurrection. That's the only thing that makes sense. How can God be good? How can all these promises that God has made in this son, and how, how can I, he asked me to slaughter him, and how can all that come together? It must be resurrection. God is leading him uh, to resurrection. And some of you might say, oh, okay, that's a New Testament writer. You know, it doesn't say that in Genesis 22. A New Testament writer is just putting resurrection back into that. I don't see any evidence of that. Not so fast, <laughs> okay? Look again at verse 5. This is, they go to the base of the mountain, they're on this journey, and they're about to, uh, Isaac, and, uh, Isaac and Abraham are about to walk up the mountain. It says in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And this is what it says in Hebrew. We will come again to you. Me and the boy are coming back. There's this hint in there. That I don't know how it's going to work out, but me and that boy, I'm going to offer him on that mountain, and both of us are coming back. He's coming back alive. And what's happening here is God is leading him to that the key to the problem of God is resurrection. And uh, when you put this fact into the story, um, everything begins to make come to come together of why is God putting Abraham through this, right? Because one of the things throughout the Bible, God always uses very graphic stories to burn them into our memory. You know, if you've ever heard the the parable where Jesus says, uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You say, wow, gouge out my eye? But, you know, you're not going to forget that, right? It's like, wow, guys out, out, it's burned into my memory. And God is taking Abraham through this graphic Account And he's taking Israel, the, the, the people are reading this through a graphic account, to burn into their memories a message. And what is a message? It's a, a, it's a father taking his promised son as an offering. And look at what it says. After the, after the angel stops him, this is what it says. Uh, um, uh, sorry, where am I? I'm, I'm losing track here. Uh, in, in verse 15 it says, And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
So what's going on? The, this, the father is sacrificing as an atonement his one beloved promised son. And through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And he's going uh, to be raised from the dead. And, uh, and there's all these other little clues. Where is it? Mount Moriah. Where's Mount Moriah? We find out later in the, that this is where the temple was built. This is where Jerusalem is. This is maybe the exact mountain where Jesus was crucified. And the original audience who's reading this, Israel, who just came out of, uh, who's just come out of Egypt, God has just rescued them. God is giving them this story to burn into their memories that the hope of the world, the hope of the nations is going to come when God is going to give his own son. Who's, and you know what? The knife is not going to be stopped on his son. And you know what? He really is going to be raised from the dead. And that father's heart really is going to be ripped in two. And he is going to be torn apart. But he will bring blessing to all the nations. And you know what the angel says to Abraham here? He says, now I know that you fear the Lord because you've not withheld from me your only son. When God actually offers his son, we'll turn that, we turn that question right back on him. And we say to that mysterious God, now we know that you love us. Now we know that you are good. Now we know that you're, you can be trusted because you've not held, withheld from us your only beloved son. And there it is. All the pieces of the gospel. And so why is God taking Abraham through this? He's revealing to him his heart and his plan of salvation. It's all there. And Abraham's working it out. And the only way he could do that is by saying to God in the midst of mystery, here am I. Thank God he did it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this word, this amazing passage, and we see your goodness in it. We see that you are a God who can be trusted. You, we see a God who never demands of anyone anything that he, you wouldn't do yourself, and that you would even go farther, that you did offer your son for our salvation, and he has been raised, and he lives now, and we look forward as he blesses all nations and that that's been us. Here we are, one of those nations, one of those people groups that he's blessed, worshiping him and looking forward to the day when he returns. So create in us a sense of longing. Here we are in Advent as we look forward to seeing that beloved son with our own eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.